0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I'm reviewing a novel that... When I had originally sat down thinking about creating a Stephen uh, King-filled podcast, um, this book gave me pause. In my review of Dreamcatcher, I mentioned that there were a couple books that I did not look forward to rereading, And this one sat at the top of the list. I remember getting it for Christmas. I still remember the feeling of a new Stephen King book all wrapped up underneath the Christmas tree. A perfect present from Santa Claus to me. You know, not in school at the time, on school vacation, no responsibilities, no plans, nothing to do, just opportunity to just sit around under the Christmas lights. Um, staying warm, drinking tea or hot chocolate, feeling just full from eating a Christmas dinner, um, maybe going out and using some of the gift cards that I had gotten if I if I get bored from not doing anything, and just, just enjoying life, right? And reading this new Stephen King book, What Could Go Wrong? The result is that my Christmas experience was all about reading a ponderous, meandering, and sad to say, boring novel about a killer car. But a killer car that never does anything. The book itself is a huge what? I mean, he'd already written his book about a killer car, The Wonderful Christine, a novel that I immensely enjoyed rereading for the purposes of this podcast. I mean, at least Christine herself prowled the streets and whose murderous intent resulted with crazy set pieces where she functioned like the shark from Jaws. The Buick? The Buick just sits in a shack. Now, is it a surprise that King writes a novel about an evil car around the time of his near-death experience after having been hit by a car? Of course not. He detailed the events of a character getting hit by a car in Dreamcatcher, and we witnessed the agony of having to recuperate from such a horrendous event. And here, the very nature of the car as an evil entity is examined. And after after having just experienced a near-death experience, King gets to exercise a lot of thoughts on the nature of death through his characters and this car. So all of this was swirling around my brain as I sat down to reread this book. But also, having read all of the books leading up to this, I understood King's growth as an author. It's the whole point of the podcast, after all. As I, and I understood that King is currently in a very, I, as I record this, right now, King is in a very existential phase that also includes Dumaki, Lisey's story, and Revival. And I knew as I headed into this that, from a Buick 8, is also part of that collection. In these novels, and I would also include Bag of Bones in it as well, the supernatural takes a backseat to the larger themes at work. Second chances for Duma Key, mourning a loved one in Lisi's story, the impact of death in revival. So I completely acknowledge that the fan who originally read From a Buick 8 wanted it to be something that it was never intended to be, I rejected this novel for years, and I was ready to give it a second chance to see what King, not the writer of horror, but the philosopher of the human spirit, had to say about fatherhood, cars, life, death, temptation, and mystery. Is it as bad as I remember it? Is it worse than I remember it? Or is it a hidden masterpiece? Let's find out. But first, uh, let me read an email from our listener, Bryant. Bryant writes, Hello, I've listened to a bunch more episodes of the podcast and had some thoughts I wanted to share. Hopefully the first email reached you. It occurs to me that I might get a few episodes in and find out that this email address was retired. If so, I guess it's Ka. Bryant, nope, I got it. And everyone, um, Bryant, this is the the second email that I have um, read Uh, on the air from, from Bryant who has great thoughts to share and he writes, your review of the Firestarter movie was great, I enjoy that film though, I don't know why maybe it just speaks to some side of me that appreciates cheese from the 80s and I get that, I get that guys I read somewhere that the score by Tangerine Dream was written without benefit of even seeing the movie they basically just wrote a bunch of music and then someone worked it into the movie however they could I have no idea if that's true but it feels true, doesn't it? like the score all the same i don't know why but i do did you ever see the sequel firestarter 2 rekindled it's dreadful and Brian, no i haven't and i don't really have any intention of of setting out uh and and watching that one Number three, I agreed with a lot of your points about Cujo, and I agree with you that the scenes written from Cujo's point of view are terrific. I don't entirely agree that the scenes involving the two marriages are superfluous. The one involving the Cambers might be, although I like those characters so I don't mind spending time with them. But the one with the Trentons seem crucial. For me, the car, the novel is a sort of nightmare scenario dealing with the repercussions of adultery. An affair can and does ruin a marriage, and a ruined marriage can literally ruin a child's life. Here, it happens very literally. So what Bryant is talking about is my uh, pretty critical review of Cujo, um, a novel that I thought was mean-spirited and ugly and you know, even though it's it's pretty short, at times I felt that it was bloated, and one of my major issues was that at its core, it's a survivalist tale of a woman and a young child just being stuck in a car, and to me, how they get to that particular point, it doesn't matter how they get there, um, and I feel as though everything that leads up to it is pretty superfluous, so... Bryant, I agree with you. I think that you're making wonderful points. I just can't shake the, the, the feeling that the, the, it was just too long. That's my thing. Is that I, I feel as though um, Cujo, for what it is, is just too long. But I mean, that's the whole purpose of this podcast. I want I want people to to write in and share their thoughts. I just received another email yesterday about the boogeyman, um, which is just cracking me up because it's such a short story, and I know that I was dismissive of of the boogeyman. But I have received more emails explaining um, interpretations of that story than any other story that i have reviewed uh which i just think is incredible and i love that so just keep keep the emails coming guys uh let's see so number five man you have got to read dance macabre at some point it's great a few sections here and there but the best parts are just gold now dance macabre i don't know if i've mentioned it on, on the podcast or not i have read it once a long time ago during Prime uh, Stephen King uh, era for me, and I was too young, and I didn't want to read a, a, a giant nonfiction essay on the author's themes uh, and and thesis of, of horror. But yeah, I mean, maybe when I'm done with the Stephen King cast, I'll sit down and I'll read it, and just sit back and enjoy to you know what what King has to say. I have read um, some of it. I I did dip into it. Um, for some contextualization of IT. And in my part three episode of my IT review, I do um, wind up talking about Danse Macabre and how IT is the uh, his thesis on horror. And so I take his, his fictional thesis and his non-fictional thesis and I, and I blend them together. Number six, I loved your story about how excited for the book, uh, the cover to Nightmares and Dreamscapes made you. I could listen to stories like that all day, and I suspect that every Hardcore King fan uh, has a few of them. Yes, thank you, and that's why I want so many of you to just share your experiences like that with me so I can I can read them on the air and just and we can build that community together. Number seven, your podcast about revival really makes me want to reread that novel for a second time. I found it to be a bit of a disappointment personally. I was really into it right up until the ants and the whatnot showed up. For some reason, that section left me utterly unmoved. This is very strange because as far as I can gather, I am maybe the only King fan in existence who reacted that way. It might be due to expectations. I'd read in a review that the final section was the scariest thing ever written or something hyperbolic like that. So I was primed and ready to have that sort of experience and then didn't. Left me feeling very down on the experience altogether, but I have to say the 370 page-ish page seventy 370 ish pages which preceded that were vintage Stephen King, so I'm hoping that when I revisit the book I'll get a lot more out of it. Your podcast made me want to accelerate that process and get to it now. I'm waiting until I have time to really sit with it and take notes so that I can write a long post or two about it on my own King blog and currently there's just no time for it and yes Brian I believe that I had read something along the same lines about how it was just terrifying the scariest thing that King has written in decades and it's not and I wish that whoever said that or put it out there maybe it was the publicist and, and the publisher I don't know but it's it's not and it's not supposed to be and thankfully I didn't I didn't have my expectations too high for it and I I and when I started reading it, I was I was able to really get my pulse on what King was doing there. So my expectations did not run counter to what he was doing. And if I had come in it from a different angle expecting something else, I probably would have disliked it because a lot of people I talk to about Revival, they don't like it. And I wonder if it's because they went into it expecting something that it was not. And I saw it for what it is, and I think that for what it is, is a near damn masterpiece. Okay, on uh, number 8, my pick to play Charles Jacobs, Brian Cranston. On Breaking Bad, he plays a guy whom we continue to love even though he begins doing worse and worse things as the series progresses. So I think he could play that aspect of Jacobs, although I don't know how you'd pull off the age range of it. Figure that out and there's a hell of a movie to be made out of that novel. 100% agree with that. That would be incredible. The dude has the range. Clearly, I would love to see it. I was happy to find out that you were a fan of The Gunslinger. It's my favorite novel of the series, personally, and I'd like to quote myself from a blog post because it's the quickest way of stating my thoughts on the great novel. And Bryant writes, I am somewhat unusual among Tower Files in that this is my favorite of the books. And yes, in fact, I do prefer the original to the revised version. I have no problems with the revised version, and I love the changes, but there is a sort of rawness about the book, present in both versions, but even more palpable in the original, that just utterly captivates me. In some ways, this feels very much like a Richard Bachman novel, which means only that it feels exactly what it is. Early Stephen King, unpolished and ragged, but frequently finding the jugular in memorable ways, a powerful talent in search of the proper avenue in which to express himself. I love the direction Roland's tale eventually took, but I'm enough of a masochist that part of me wishes that Stephen King had never written any further in this first novel. I can distinctly recall reading the book for the first time and feeling positively epic feelings about who Roland was and what his quest meant and how it would all turn out and knowing that really, in all of the vital ways, I could never know these things. This was a novel of questions, not answers. I wanted to know the answers, but in a way, I wanted to never know them. I love that sort of dark, majestic, unresolvable mystery, and as much as I also love King's later resolutions, I still yearn to be that young man depraved by the thought of Roland sitting at that beach, the tower distant beyond all hope of approach. Actually, that's not masochism at all, is it? That's just yearning for the complex pleasure that is a mystery, and I'll stand by that, Brian. That's great. That's a great insight. Um, and personally, the the, the Gunslinger is my one of my least favorite um, inclusions of of the novel um, or of of the series. But I really like what you said there. You know, in an alternate universe, maybe that's all that he wrote. And that's all that we ever get out of the Gunslinger. And maybe it wasn't meant to continue. And it's just a really interesting thought. By the way, last year I was finally able to make a major acquisition for my King collection. I found for less than hundred dollars a complete set of the original magazine appearances of the five tales which comprise the Gunslinger. They were published individually in fantasy and science fiction during the '70s and '80s, and apparently there are mild differences between those versions and the '81 version, which ran in a way, which in a way makes the 2000 revision the second revision. I'm looking forward to sitting down with all three versions of these one days and writing a comprehensive post about the differences. That's awesome. I don't know if anyone wrote to you about this and I'd be shocked if nobody did, but when you asked in the podcast, what the relevance of Legion was, did you consider the fact that Lenoge Ah, so in storm of the century, I referenced a, a a listener email that Headbed sent in, and I wasn't sure whether or not I had read it yet. This is the one that I was referring to. But when you asked in the podcast what the relevance of Legion was, did you consider the fact that Linoge in Storm of the Century is discovered to have derived his name from mixing up the letters of Legion? Then, of course, at some point in the stand, Flag is referred to as Legion. It's possible that all these characters, plus... Various One and Dark Tower books, Martin, Walter, Farson, are all part of the same group of primordial demons who are collectively known as Legion. Maybe they also share many attributes that, to some extent, they think themselves as one and the same. I don't know. It's a topic I've long considered to be worthy of extensive exploration, but never gotten around to actually doing it. I think there's something there, though. Thanks for the great podcasts. I'm enjoying the hell out of them. So, Bryant, like... And everyone out there, I like I've said about the the whole Legion thing. I don't think that there is a literal connective tissue between these characters, between Lenoge and Pennywise and Flag, and there's another that referred to himself as Legion recently that I can't remember off the top of my head. But I, I don't think that there is something that that I don't think that King is trying to say that these are the same characters i think that the explanation is a more of a thematic one that they're thematically cut from the same cloth but that that's just from a symbolic standpoint um i i honestly don't believe that there is this pit of hell where these characters all came from the same place that's that's my personal opinion so guys if you have not done so already feel free to write into the Stephen King cast sorry Stephen King cast at yahoo.com and also if you have some free time on your hands head on over to iTunes write a review because that would help out the Stephen King cast greatly okay what i'm going to do now i'm going to buckle up Turn the car on, hit the gas, and drive straight into my review of From a Buick 8, beginning with the Wikipedia summary so I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. The novel is a series of recollections by the members of Troop D, a state police barracks in western Pennsylvania. After Curtis Wilcox, a well-liked member of Troop D, is killed by a drunk driver, his son Ned begins to visit the barracks the cops, the dispatcher, and the custodian quickly take a liking to him and soon begin begin telling him about the Buick 8 and its title. It is in some sense a ghost story in the way that the novel is about a group of people telling an old but unsettling tale. While the Buick 8 is not a traditional ghost, it is indeed not of their world. The Buick 8 which resembles a vintage 1953 Buick Roadmaster, has been in storage in a shed near the barracks since 1979, when it was left at a gas station by a mysterious driver who then disappeared. The car, they discover, is not a car at all. It appears to be a Buick Roadmaster, but the steering wheel is immobile. The dashboard instruments are useless props. The engine has no moving parts and ignition wires that go nowhere. The car heals itself when scratched or dented, and all dirt and debris are repelled by it. Sandy Dearborn, now Sergeant Commanding of Troop D, is the main narrator of the book, and tells the story to Ned, discussing various things that have happened with the car and his father's fascination with it. The car will frequently give off what they dub lightquakes, or large flashes of purple light over an extended period of time, and will occasionally give birth to strange plants and creatures that aren't anything like what they've seen in their world. Two people have disappeared in the vicinity of the car, Curtis Wilcox's former partner Ennis Rafferty, and an escaped lowlife named Brian Lippy. they picked up for drunk driving and being under the influence of angel dust, is later suggested in the book that perhaps the Buick was a portal between our world and another. After hearing the story of the Buick, and how it has been kept in secret by Troop D for so long, Ned becomes convinced that the car was somehow related to the death of his father in a seemingly random road accident. After all, the gas station attendant who first reported the Buick sitting in front of the station was the same man who, years later, would kill his father. Sandy cautions him to keep from obsessing over the Buick. There are Buicks everywhere, he warns. But after leaving Ned at the Troop D facility to eat at a diner, he realizes Ned never asked about one subject, actively avoided asking about it, whether anyone considered destroying it. He realizes that Ned is determined to destroy the Buick, and that the Buick, in fact, wants to use that impulse to take Ned into the world and connects to ours. Sandy returns to the shed to find Ned sitting in it. Ned having poured gasoline under the car and holding a pistol and a match. Just as Sandy pulls Ned out, the Buick transforms into a portal, trying to draw both Ned and Sandy inside. The rest of the staff arrive on the feeling that something bad may happen, all of them helping recall the story of the Buick's origin at their own station, and manage to pull Ned and Sandy free, but not before Sandy glimpses into the world on the other side of the Buick. He sees Lippy's swastika necklace and cowboy boot along with Ennison's Stetson and Ruger. One last story is told, revealing that destroying the Buick actually was discussed, however they came to theorize that the Buick functions as a sort of regulator valve, drawing in and out between the two worlds, and that destroying it would do much more harm than good, releasing whatever malign power is maintained by it. They decide that it is safest to watch over the Buick, in the hope that whatever force that powers it will eventually dissipate and expire. The book closes, with Ned joining the police force after dropping out of college, and he pulls Sandy over to Shed B. The Buick's windshield is cracked and remains cracked without healing itself. Ned believes that the Buick will one day fall apart, having expanded the last of its energy in that final attempt to draw him over into that other universe. Analysis Right away, we learn the important beats. The story is told through the first-person perspective by the partner of a fallen trooper whose son is hanging around because he doesn't want to let go. Two things about this. One, it's similar to Christine, which was also told in first-person and also starred high schoolers, an age which King rarely writes about. So already he's opening the door to comparisons to his other car story, by this time the classic Christine. As I said earlier, I had a hard time getting into this book, and one of the reasons was that I was bored. I had already read a novel about an evil car, and the first one was better. On the other hand, King is not attempting to tell the same story twice. Yes, it might share some elements with Christine, but should should they be enough to discount from a Buick 8 entirely? Christine was a horror story that served as a metaphor for the death of childhood friendships, for growing up and the freedoms and dangers that came with owning your first car. From a Buick 8 is none of those things. So, is holding it to Christine unfair? From a Buick 8 is a quiet examination on the state of mourning, of trying to grasp universal concepts while existing in the rhythms of a day-to-day life that threatens to take you further and further from the person you're trying to remember. And that's the real horror, isn't it? That we do move on. That in our DNA, we've built a coping mechanism that's the equivalent of a conveyor belt to just carry the dead away from us. In order to enjoy from a Buick 8, you have to place Christine on that conveyor belt. You might love it, and you might love Dennis and Arnie and Lee and maybe even Christine herself. But their story is told, and this is not their story. Christine was a story about a very active, sentient car that allowed King to write his very own teenage death song. By its very nature, it's going to be different from a Buick 8, which is a static object. Furthermore, the Buick doesn't have a cute nickname. It's not going to be that evil car. It's going to be distant and secretive, like death itself, or the inner mysteries of life. And in its heart, that's what this novel is about about introspective musings. So it's our, so our job is to see if King manages to write a novel that lives up to his intent. And right away he's able to place us there with little details we can bite into, like the description of the blown-out sheds of tractor-trailer-tire that we've all seen on the highway. He takes this detail and builds it up from the death of Trooper Curtis Wilcox. The death itself is both small and magnified at the same time. You know, Why should a man die like that, inspecting a tire flap on a big rig? It seems so small, but from it we and Ned will extrapolate much larger questions. What does a death like this say about our world? What is the point if it can end so meaninglessly? Dreamcatcher was King's first opportunity to write about the car crash that almost took his life. Through the character of Jonesy, he manages to detail the impact and the rehabilitation that followed. With the novel, which, though it might unspool later in the story, remains centered in all aspects of the crash, both pre- and post-crash, King began his first steps at working through a traumatic experience the likes of which you and I hopefully will never have to endure. But he covered all of those examinations up in a messy story about aliens and Down Syndrome, friendships, the military, alien possession, aliens sliding out of your butt, alien spores, and more. There's so many elements in play within Dreamcatcher that it's easy to lose touch with what King is trying to say about nearly dying. Here, he has the opportunity to truly flesh it out. Both novels deal with the aftermath of a car crash at the hands of a driver not in control. King makes sure to recreate the intent, or lack thereof, of the driver who had done this to him, first by recreating him as a feeble old man who shouldn't have been driving, and here as a bumbling drunk who took his eyes off the road to snag a beer. Sandy, our narrator, then drives into the aftermath of Ned Wilcox, who has begun to devote his time to helping out the Troop D house, and with this, King makes a quick little, but nevertheless important. Uh, statement on life after death as everyone sits and chats with ned sandy tells us none of the talk was about his father all of the talk was about his father you understand king then goes on to posit that we're all comprised of different links in a chain one that was broken when curtis died sorry guys a new chain is forming with ned taking over custodial and dispatch duties in the barracks. And with every routine and relationship he forms, the chain grows stronger. This occurs during the moment when Ned first takes dispatch duty, and King fills the scene with emotional truth that I never would have thought possible. How many movies have we seen where someone is pulled over? How many times have we ourselves been pulled over? This takes the well-worn concept of being pulled over and places us behind the scenes, in the station, with the importance of dispatch and the little details like whether or not the driver has a registered license or whether this, this, this registered license all of a sudden has life or death weight to it. The way they imagine the trooper sitting in his cruiser, keeping his eye on the driver, trying to determine what type of man or woman he might be. There are too many unknown variables for this to ever be truly safe. And King captures that in a way that I've never seen captured before, and I don't think that many of us have ever really thought about it like that way before. So many of us, you know, in this experience, if we're pulled over, we see being pulled over, we put ourselves in that particular situation, and we think about the inconvenience of it, inconvenience of not being able to get to where we want to go, where we were stopped um, on our way to getting there by the police, and then just the, the inconvenience of having to pay the ticket, right? You know, so we... Very rarely are able to take ourselves out of our own shoes and think about the larger picture here, what that must be like, having to approach an unknown car, not knowing exactly what's going to happen when you get to it. With Troop D, Ned has found a new family to share his life experiences, both big and small. You can't help but smile when he bursts into the barracks to announce that he's been accepted into college. After a nice celebration with the crew, Sandy later discovers Ned out back crying, and it's understandably why. The troop can be there for him, but they can't replace his father. Sandy and Ned have an honest conversation about mourning, or rather, Ned has an honest venting session, and Sandy just listens. It's an authentic scene, one I'm sure that we've all found ourselves in, with someone experiencing a grief that we aren't equipped to help them through. Not that there's any real way to get them through it, except physically being there sometimes. It's during this conversation where the theme of the novel establishes itself, finding a reason in death. Ned rejects the concept of God due to the meaningless way that his father had died. And soon after, Ned discovers the Buick in Shed B. The Buick itself had been teased since the first page of the novel, and Sandy has slipped in cryptic references here and there. But with Sandy's discovery of it, It's the first time we get to really examine what this thing is. We know it's a Buick, but we know that it's not a Buick at the same time. Sandy thinks that it's not really a 54, a Buick, or a car at all. It's something else. King starts to tease the supernatural aspects of the story with the tarp flying off the car as ned is washing the windows and sandy telling him not to enter after checking the thermostat realizing that's too cold which means that's not safe to enter a little detail like that goes a long way we then get flashback of how the troop received the buick in the first place king through sandy does a masterful job expectantly of creating a sense of surreal wrongness about the driver of the car his pale features his black hair the fact that his voice sounds like it's coming from a throat full of jelly now all of this is technically being reported by sandy but that's just an excuse for king to transport the reader to this flashback the flashbacks are crucial not because a lot happens in fact comprised of inaction and they're they're comprised of inaction and um, being passive. I mean the car is left behind. The driver disappears. If this was an earlier king work, the two state troopers would have been um, would have found the dead body of Brad Roach. We would have been treated to a death scene to reinforce the car's danger level and demonstrate the supernatural at work. But that's not what happens here. It's not dramatic and it isn't supposed to be. The point is made with great result and it doesn't take time at all to convey this. There's something very wrong with this car. King details all of the way this car is really not a car, and how it drops the temperature around it. Through the flashback, King teases what happens that night with the disappearance of Trooper Ennis, who was the first of the Buick victims. Again, if it was Christine, there'd be a mangled body and a scene where the character is getting hunted by the evil car, but that isn't the story that he's telling. It's not about the wonder of a killer car. It's about the mystery that surrounds the strange thing that looks like a car. After Ennis has gone missing the first night, they bring their dog, Mr. Dillon, to see if he can catch Ennis' scent, and King's description of the dog's reaction to the car says everything we need to know about the Buick. If there was any chance that Ned didn't believe the story, he can't deny it after he sees one of the car's lightquakes coming out of the barn. Now that he's a witness as well as a believer, Ned raises a question that the audience has been asking as well. And that's why, if this car has been sitting in a stationary location and has continually exhibited strange behavior, then why has it never been studied by scientists? The troopers explain that as long as it was in the shed, it was safe from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world was safe from it. They knew what it would do as long as it was in the shed, but if it was out of the shed, poked and prodded by scientists, who knew what horrors they could cook up and unleash upon the world? King gives us a detailed scene of the first of the lightquakes, which, on um, being a dead horse, is very, very well written, and it happens on page 88. Sandy was calm, startled but calm. He thought, this is it. It's blowing, we're all dead the thought of running or jumping into this cruiser into his cruiser never entered his head run where drive where it was a joke what he wanted was crazy to get closer it drew him he wasn't terrified of it as mr d had been he felt the fascination but not the fear crazier or not he wanted to get closer could almost hear it calling him closer Feeling like a man in a dream, it crossed his mind that dreaming was a serious possibility. He walked back to the driver's side of D14, leaned in through the open window, and plucked his sunglasses off the dashboard. He put them on and started walking towards the shed. It was a little better with the sunglasses, but not much. He walked with his hand raised in front of him, and his eyes narrowed to stringent slits. The world boomed silent light all around and throbbed with purple fire. Sandy could see his shadow jumping out from his feet, disappearing, and then jumping out again. He could see the light leaping from the windows in the roll-up door and glaring off the backs of the barracks. He could see troopers starting to spill out, pushing aside Matt Babicki from Dispatch, who had been closest and who got outside first. In the flashes from the shed, everyone moved herky-jerky like actors in a silent film. Those who had sunglasses in their pockets reached to put them on. Some of those who didn't turn and stumbled back in to get them. One trooper even drew his gun, looked down at it as if to say, what am I going to do with this, and put it back in his holster two of the troopers without sunglasses groped gamely onward towards the shed nevertheless heads down and eyes shut and hands held out before them like the hands of sleepwalkers drawn as sandy had been towards the stuttery flashes and that low maddening hum like bugs to a buglelight the troop deals with the light quake as best they can checking for radiation agreeing to a wall of silence and king teases us when he hints that the car gives birth The scene builds up tension as Huddy and Arky debate then decide to enter the shed after the custodian had discovered something in the corner of the shed. It's easy to understand their hesitation as they enter. It is a Stephen King novel, after all. They find a dead bat creature that fills them with the certainty of alien origin and and unsettles them greatly. What this novel is doing is simply providing the unnatural and allowing it to affect our characters rather than have our characters have to act upon it with heroism or determination as so many horror novels require. This is different. This is a more realistic, if that's the word you want to use, examination of what you would do if placed in this situation. During the light show, they devise an experiment with gerbils that results with the mysterious disappearance of one of the gerbils. They then decide to dissect the creature that could best best be described as bat-like. Later, during a massive light show, a monstrous fish creature slides out of the trunk, as big as a sofa and horrifying. King describes the tentacle-like features that project from its front, which immediately instill an alien quality to it. Um, And then King gives a long sequence involving involving a crash, a tanker, a bus, a fire, and a prisoner, which culminates with the dog, Mr. Dylan, rushing into the shed. And though we've seen alien animals before, this is the first time that we see uh, an alien humanoid. Some force originating in the Buick, I suppose. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know if that's the case or not. I only know that the door was open. That was where the worst of the stench was coming from and was where Mr. Dillon was going. Shirley ran down the steps, Huddy right behind her, both of them yelling for Mr. D to come back. They passed us. George ran after them and I ran after George. There had been a light show from the Buick two or three days before. I hadn't been there, but someone had told me about it and the temperature had been down in B for almost a week. Not a lot, Only four or five degrees. There were a few signs in other words, but nothing really spectacular. Nothing you'd get up in the middle of the night and write home to mother about. Nothing that would have led us to suspect what we found when we got inside. Shirley was first screaming Dee's name, and then just screaming. A second later, and Huddy was screaming too. Mr. Dillon was barking in a lower register by then, only was barking and growling all mixed together. It's the sound a dog makes when he's got something treed or at bay. George Morgan yelled out, Oh my lord, oh my dear Jesus Christ, what is it? I went into the shed, but not very far. Shirley and Huddy were standing shoulder to shoulder, and George was right behind them. They had the way pretty well blocked up. The smell was rank. It made your eyes water and your throat close, but I hardly noticed it. The Buick's trunk was open again. Beyond the car, in the far corner of the shed, stood a thin and wrinkled yellow nightmare with a head that wasn't really a head at all but a loose tangle of pink cords, all of them twitching and squirming. Under them you could see more of the yellow wrinkled flesh. It was very tall, seven feet at least. Some of those pink cords lashed out in one of the overhead beams as it stood there. The sound they made was fluttery, like moths striking window glass at night, trying to get at the light they see or sense behind it. I can still hear that sound. Sometimes, I hear it in my dreams. Within the thicket made by those wavering, convulsing pink things, something kept opening and closing in the yellow flesh. Something black and round. It might have been a mouth. It might have been trying to scream. I can't describe what it was standing on. It's like my brain couldn't make any sense of what my eyes were seeing. Not legs, I'm sure of that much. And I think that there might have been three instead of two. They ended in black, curved talons. The talons had bunches of of wiry hair growing out of them. I think it was hair, and I think there were bugs hopping in the tufts, little bugs like nits or fleas. From the thing's chest, there hung a twitching gray hose of flesh covered with uh, shiny black circles of flesh. Maybe they were blisters, or maybe, God help me, those things were its eyes. Standing in front of it, barking and snarling and spraying curds of foam from his muzzle was our dog. He made as if to lunge forward, and the thing shrieked at him from the black hole. The gray hose twitched like a boneless arm or a frog's leg when you shoot electricity into it. Drops of something flew from the end and hit the shed's floor. Smoke began to rise from those spots at once, and I could see them eating into the concrete. Um, What happens here in this scene is clearly the highlight of the novel. It's a disturbing sequence in which Mr. D attacks the thing, which starts to fight, and scream, which goes off like a bomb in each of their heads. It leads to the moment where the men descend upon the creature and murder it. They each ganged up and murdered what was essentially an innocent creature from another world. Afterward, through Huddy's perspective, we see how close he was to stepping into the open trunk. And then King gives us the awful death of Mr. Dillon, it's gruesome and sad, and that ends Sandy's tale. After Sandy and Ned part, Sandy realizes that Ned has fooled him, and he's heading back into the barracks, back into the shed. And now, after 300 pages, the novel finally has some life to it. Sandy finds Ned behind the wheel of the Buick, which starts sucking him into another dimension. He's only saved by Troop D, who had a feeling to return, and after they form a chain, which had been Sandy's metaphor for the entire novel, they're able to save Ned. So let's talk about looking for understanding in the meaningless of death. The supernatural aspects are just dressing on a body. That's all about understanding death. Ned needs answers, so this prompts him to fill the void left by his father. Curtis and Brad are linked by the Buick. And the Buick is a holding pattern for the rest of the novel. Sandy makes a reference to Hamlet at one point, and don't forget that Hamlet was a character who had lost his father and whose character trait is inaction. With Ned, we have a character whose father has died who was likewise likewise stuck between two worlds, a choice to make, to live, or to continue to unlive. Every movement towards the car is a step towards death, and walking away from it all is a step towards life. So much of this novel revolves around an everyday moment or object. What King does is set the spotlight on that object and let the dread creep in around the edges. First, it's the Buick. It's also the shed, which houses the monster. It's Trooper Ennis' car. Finding the car at the barracks after Ennis has supposedly gone home suggests menace and danger. But the car doesn't do anything. There's no blood in it. There's no signs of a struggle. It's just a car. The car should not should not be there because the driver is not supposed to be there. The inaction continues. The light quake feels like a build up to something, yet that something never comes. The trunk will then release a bat, but it doesn't attack our characters as it has died already. King doubles back on the purposelessness. Purposelessness? Yes, purposelessness of um Reality after the car's first light quake. After Kurt takes the uh, Polaroid shots of the car, King writes Some had been taken during the flashes and showed almost nothing the glimmer of grillwork, a piece of that Buick's roof. Others were much clearer. The best had that odd, flat, declamatory quality which is the sole property of Polaroid photographs. I see a world where there's only cause and effect. They seem to say a world where every object is an avatar, and no gods move behind the scenes. Even the catchphrases speaks of death, inaction, and meaninglessness. Curiosity killed the cat, and satisfaction brought him back. At one point, Sandy even questions if that second part is a lie. That would mean that all the thing that the only thing that happens here is that curiosity kills the cat. All there is is death. You know what we're gonna get here are what we're not going to get here is any answers that go along with it it's like sandy says on page 158 there never was an answer everything to do with the buick was a shimmer mirage like the ones you see on i87 when it's hot and bright except that's not quite true either if it had been i think we could have dismissed the buick eventually The way you realize that you're not going to catch whoever did it, that the guy is going to slide. With the Buick and the things that came out of the Buick, there was always something you could catch a hold of. Something you could touch or hear. And later, Sandy realizes that Ned is trying to fit the Buick into the story so that his father's death makes sense. Which we get on uh, the bottom of 179 to 180. My own anger rose out of refusal to take everything I wanted to give for having the gall to pick and choose. But where did this come from? What was its center? That his mother had been lied to, not just once, but over and over as the years passed? That he himself had been lied to, if only by omission? Was he mad at his father for holding on to a secret? Mad at us? Us? Surely he didn't believe the Buick had killed his father. Why would he? Bradley Roach was safely on the hook for that. Roach had unspooled him... Up the side of a pulled over sixteen wheeler, leaving a blood smear ten feet long and as tall as a state trooper, about six feet two in the case of Curtis Wilcox, pulling his clothes not just off but inside out as well, in the scream of brakes, all the while the radio playing WPND, which built itself Western Pennsylvania's Country Fried Radio. What else could it be but country with a half drunk low rider like Bradley? Daddy sang bass, mama sang tenor, as the coins were ripped out of Curtis Wilcox's pants and his penis was torn off like a weed and his balls were reduced to strawberry jelly and his comb and wallet landed on the yellow line. Bradley Roach responsible for all of that maybe you want to save some blame for dickie's convenience and statler that sold him the beer or maybe for the beer company itself with its good time ads about cute talking frogs and funny ballpark beer men instead of dead people lying by the highway with their guts hanging out or maybe you want to blame it on bradley's dna little twists of cellular rope that have been whispering drink more drink more drink more ever since bradley's first sip because some people are just wired up that way, which is say like suitcase bombs are ready to explode, which is absolutely zero comfort to the dead and wounded. Or maybe God was to blame. God's always a popular whipping boy because he doesn't talk back and never writes columns for the op-ed page. Not the Buick though, right? He couldn't find the Buick in Kurt's death no matter how he traced it. The Buick had been sitting miles away in Shed B, fat and luxy and blameless on its white wall tires that wouldn't take dirt or even the slightest pebble in the treads but repudiated each and every one right down as far as we could tell the finest grain of sand it was just sitting there and minding its business when trooper wilcox bled out on the side of the pennsylvania state road 23 and if it was sitting there all the while in the faintest baleful reek of cabbage what of that What's interesting here is that Sandy is growing frustrated with Ned's refusal to understand that their lives do not revolve around the Buick. And I love this. The Buick was simply a part of their lives. If the Buick represents death, then Sandy is really frustrated that the boy is refusing to believe that death is a part of life. And that like it, the Buick is not here to provide meaning to somebody's life. Sandy ruminates on the boy's insistence that there should be meaning on page 307. I laughed and clapped him on the shoulder. The shadows had gone out of his face, and suddenly it was possible to like him again. As for his questions and his childish insistence that the story must have an ending, that the ending must hold some kind of answer, time might take care of it. Maybe I'd been expecting... Too many of my own answers. The imitation lies we see on TV and in the movies whisper the idea that human existence consists of revelations and abrupt changes of heart. By the time we've reached full adulthood, I think this is an idea we have on some level come to accept. Such things may happen from time to time, but I think that for the most part, it's a lie. Life's changes come slowly. They come the way my youngest nephew breathes in his deepest sleep. Sometimes I feel the urge to put a hand on his chest just to assure myself he's still alive. Seen in that light, the whole idea of curious cats attaining satisfaction seems slightly absurd. The world rarely finishes its conversations. If 23 years of living with the Buick 8 taught me nothing else, it should have taught me that. At this moment, Kurt's boy looked as if he might have taken a step towards getting better. Maybe even two. And I couldn't let that be enough for one night. I had my own problems king ultimately reminds us that while we're alive we're supposed to live and life is the relationship that we form with those around us the distillation of sandy's belief which manifests itself when the literal chain of people dragged ned away from the car's clutch ned might have a better understanding but he can't entirely let it go wanting to know where it came from and sandy's response is perfect you don't know where you came from or where you're going, do you? I asked him. But you live with it just the same. Don't rail against it too much. Don't spend more than an hour a day shaking your fist at the sky and cursing God. Final thoughts before I get into the Stephen Kingisms and the Easter eggs. From a Buick A is not what I remember it. Again, I was not in the right frame of mind when I first read it. I wanted horror. I wanted tension. I did not want rumination and introspection. But with that said, I still don't believe that it lives up to its promise of an examination of moving on from a death in the family. But I'll say that the dread, mystery, and wonder that the Buick brings is effective. And the entire time, I thought that it could make for a very interesting movie. With Troop D documenting it from the beginning, it's a perfect way for this to, to turn this movie into a found footage film, which, as far as I can think of, hasn't been done with a Stephen King story yet. And it would be a good way to distance itself from Christine. But here's the thing, guys. This novel, it's the Seinfeld of horror novels. It's about nothing. It's about the senselessness of the world that we live in. Don't bother trying to make sense of it, because noth- making sense of it just won't work. There's no point, and that's the issue. With a novel about nothing, it doesn't make for a thrilling reading experience, by design. King even addresses it through Sandy's perspective on Ned. What happened when you dissected the bat thing? Tell me about the fish. Tell me everything. But, this is important, tell me a story. One that has a beginning and a middle and an end where everything is explained because I deserve that. Don't shake the rattle of your ambiguity in my face. I deny its place. I repudiate its claim. I want a story. So this here seems to be King putting it out there for the critics who might rail against the fact that it just kind of, like I said before, just meanders. It doesn't have that much of a structure, and it doesn't, yes, it builds towards a climax where they, they pull the, the the boy from the the car before the car can suck him in, but again... It's just one one piece that's tacked onto a series of, of other little vignettes and it, it isn't really the, the culmination of, of a plot point. The, the novel never builds really towards anything, much in the way that life doesn't. Life just goes. life just flows and this novel does the same. And with the quotes that I have, I've read so far it shows that it just it just kind of ends, just like life. For some of us, well, for all of us, eventually, when the end comes, some of us will have the opportunity to say goodbye. Others will not, um, and it's up for it's up to those who are left living to make sense of things in their own way and ride that conveyor belt of life and and move on. Yes, in the end, King gives us some hope in the sense that Ned is saved, like I said, through the power of those around him. Life literally reaches out to snatch him from the clutches of death. So extrapolate meaning from that, if you will. I just feel that it can't take away from the fact that it, even though it's done well, I still found it to be boring, which sucks. Because it is effective in what it does, but it doesn't necessarily make for an interesting read. Interesting in an academic sense not interesting from a sensation of reading sense. Um, so that's a disappointment. It's done well. I understand what he's doing with it, but I'm never going to read it again. Um, it's a short novel. I mean, just over 300 pages. I mean, it's a very short novel, but just to me, it felt like it wouldn't end. So to really close out the thoughts on From a View okay, I I'm able to distance it from Christine and Trucks and the road virus heads north. And everything he's done with a, with a car before. And I like what he's doing with it. Um, using the, the car itself as a metaphor for inactivity. For trying to come up with a sense of meaning in a meaningless world. I, and death itself. I like all of that. So I understand that. But um, I don't know. I just wonder if you can do that while also telling a story and making it a little bit more thrilling i don't know what are your thoughts guys let let me know by writing into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com so to really really close it out i'm going to read uh the stephen king isms and the easter eggs the stephen king isms first of all the evil car like i've said i mean clearly um this is not the first time that that king has uh written about a some sort of evil vehicle. Uh, number two is tearing paper into streams to relieve tension. In the story of how the Buick wound up in the possession of the state police, the gas station attendant rips up strips of newspaper while waiting for the driver to return, just like the Bronson Pinchot character from Langoliers. Toomey. Number three is strange light coming from the shed, uh, which we first saw in Tommy Knocker's and here in From a Buick 8. Number four is addiction. Curtis and Tony were addicted to the Buick, and this is just the latest in a long list of addiction that we have seen in the pages of Stephen King works. And the last one is probably the most important. It is the strength of a community coming together to overcome an obstacle, which I believe is the heart of Stephen King's thesis, Um, and it's, it's it's what we see again and again and again in his works. And we have two easter eggs, guys, the first of which is Inside View. Um, Sandy thinks about this newspaper at one point, Inside View, is a tabloid that was first seen in the Dead Zone, and we have followed its um, one of its employees, Richard Dees, in both the pages of the Dead Zone and the Night Flyer, and the tabloid itself has been spotted in numerous um, Stephen King stories. And then we have Low Men in Yellow Coats. Uh, one of the the, the driver of the, the, the Buick is one of the Low men. He's described very similarly to the way that the Low Men were described in Low Men in Yellow Coats from the pages of Hearts and Atlantis. And we will see the Low men again very soon when we get to the final pages of the Dark Tower. Okay, guys, that's all that I have from a Buick 8. And next week, what am I reviewing next week, guys? But uh, Everything's Eventual, that's what it is. It's uh, Everything's Eventual, uh, his early 2000 short story collection. Uh, so make sure that you stick around for that. I will also be reviewing the uh, John Cusack, um, Samuel L. Jackson starring adaptation of 1408, story that was included in Everything's Eventual. And then after that, guys, after that, We're going to be taking our final steps towards the Dark Tower as I begin to make my review of Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and the Dark Tower Book 7, The Dark Tower. So we got some really good stuff coming up. Looking forward to sharing it with you. And until then, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King. Little boy blue and the man When you're coming home, son, I don't know when But we'll get together then, Dad. We're gonna have a good time there.